Today's episode is brought to you by the Vegas Beer Guys and the Sounds and Cinema Podcast. Mike and Tom are washing their mouths out with soap because the Everything Sequel Podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Everything Sequel Podcast. This is the last 2009 single edition. Today, we're on the prestige movie, Che Part 2. My name is Michael Schantz of the How Dare You Awards. Joining me, the man trying to throw me out of the country, Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions. Say hi, Tom. With a mojito, you cannot grind up the leaves. That was news to me when when I... <laughs> <laughs> I've I've never seen a mojito not muddled. Yeah, well, there you go, and that that comes straight from uh, straight from the mouth of Fidel Castro. But from Castro, so, yeah. Do with that what you will. <laughs> a guy known for his honesty, historically, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, well, you know who Fidel Castro. Do you know who Fidel Castro reminded me of in that moment? Oh no! Tell me. Nelson Muntz, <laughs> when he's talking about Hucklebreeze. <laughs> this guy has just staged a revolution and uh, toppled a country. Oh, that's and he's great. at a party talking to people about mojitos and how you how you can't grind up the leaves. You know, with a huckleberry... You, <laughs> what's he say? is like, you gotta get them right when they're nice and plump. Yeah, he's like, I have fresh Hucklebreeze. And now I know I can't go back to Frozen. <laughs> I, I mean, I kicked the guy's ass. <laughs> and if they're too tight, you just powder some sugar on it. Oh, it's so funny. Yeah. Well, it's you know it was it was uh, it was really interesting to watch this movie because I have a I have a bit of a Fidel Castro anecdote. Uh, Based based on friend of the show Matthew Aldrich, mm. who a, as he was first starting to write, he uh, his first job he worked at the Sundance Institute, and he would yeah. help set up international. He worked in the international program and he'd set up festivals, and he went to Cuba like four years in a row. So one, he came back from that first trip and said, "We have to go to the store and get mint. I have to tell you about mojitos." There you go. And this this was our introduction to mojitos. And then two, you know, they had set up this festival. I I we'd have to t- I'd have to ask him, but I think I have this right when I say that, you know, there was a group of people that went, so you have some writers, some directors, maybe some actors. I don't remember any. The one name I remember is Alexander Payne. I think Alexander Payne was on this trip. Plausible. So anyway, they're they're about to watch this movie, and lo and behold, who walks in but Fidel Castro, and he sits in the row in front of the Sundance Institute delegation, and everybody's kind of looking around like, holy shit, that's Fidel Castro. And then they all went to a bar afterwards, and one person kind of raised their hand and sheepish, sheepishly said, did anybody else think of assassinating Fidel Castro? And everybody was like, yes, I thought I could be the person <laughs> known forever. <laughs> if I only had a pen in my pocket. Well, <laughs> well he, 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 it could have been a reverse gadget pen from Pink Panther 2. Yeah, you never know. 
for all he know. <laughs> that's that's wonderful. Well, I've not come in that close proximity to uh, Fidel Castro. I Just... was once invited to uh, teach in Cuba, um, but I uh, I got the email too late. Someone had already uh, taken up taken up the offer. Oh, well, there you go. They sent it out to everyone who was working in my department, and um, I got I got there too too late. And and that's would, the, you know, would you have gone? I, I would have absolutely gone. I mean, yeah. I'm British, so I have no, I you know, I've got no skin in the game, in terms of you know, but it'd be less thrilling because I'm more I'm allowed to go anyway. Yeah, right. Um, you know, you, you it, it, we're American citizens aren't and not actually allowed to go to Cuba. They have to get special permission to do that. Mm-hmm. But anyone you know outside of America can just come and go as they. Well, probably not that easy, but uh, right. easier than people have it here. Well, it, oh, I, I would have absolutely, I, I would have absolutely done it. And one of the things, and germane to what we're going to talk about, is that anytime you want to romanticize Cuban communism, the two things you talk about are uh, education and medicine. Right? Mm-hmm. It's like top notch in cuba right right everything else suffers to make that the best like a gold standard so it's no surprise to me that that you know these that they're you know they're going to all these universities around the world going you know come 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 here come to this yeah and the people i knew who went there to teach came back saying boy they got it figured out there they really do in terms of education well it's funny you say that because that's my understanding in terms of, of education and medicine, but there's also, you said everything else suffers, so this embargo that we've had, mm-hmm. you know, it, it means something devastating to, a lot, you know, the people of Cuba. Yeah. But one thing I remember, other I haven't been myself, but I, you know, talking to others who have been to Cuba, they said, of course, lifting the embargo would be great for the people, but at the same time, it would also ruin some stuff that's kind of magical about Cuba. Like, all the taxi right. cabs are all these, like, 1950s Chevrolets and Fords, yeah. you know, these kind of classic cars, because that was the last time we sent anything there. And yeah. so there's something there's something kind of magical, nostalgia-wise, about that yeah, as well. Like I mean, you 19- want the people to be better off, but yeah, yeah. It you know it comes at the price of of civil liberties, but yeah, but, you know, it keeps it the nineteen fifties fantasy camp that you want it to be. Right, right. So, uh, you know, and you know, there's pers- persecution and repression of civil liberties, and obviously, you know, uh, the problems that come with any totalitarian regime, but all too often. Uh, communist Cuba is caricatured as you know this kind of banana republic, and that's not necessarily the case in some aspects of the society. Right. Yeah. Although it is, it is certainly true of others, and you know, I'm not trying to minimize you know the LB LBGTDQ, uh, you know, persecutions, which you know is obviously like on a human rights level just horrific, but um, you know, it, it's it's no, no, no one society has got it all figured out. No, yeah. Anywhere in the world, you know, um, and you sometimes need to remind yourself of it. And this, I think, this is a movie that's trying to remind you of. I mean, we're not, we're not talking about Cuba necessarily in this movie. No, but 
That's part it one. It makes the arguments. <laughs> it, it it makes the arguments for and against uh, the path that Che Che Guevara and Fidel Castro took Cuba down. Mm-hmm. And you see both. You see both sides. Well, and of, you see, yeah, especially in this movie, you see what does happen to the people. Mm-hmm. These poor farmers in, that are just trying to you know live in the hills. Yeah, and when they're being pulled by both sides, right. And what that does to their, you know, tiny, tiny communities. Uh, And it's horrific. And and that's an interesting part of warfare that I think we alluded to in the ranking episode that most movies wouldn't do. But Steven Soderbergh takes the time to focus on in this movie. And that's why it's one of the reasons why this movie's at the top of my list. One of the reasons why I find the movie so interesting and why, in the end, I think it is a compelling movie. Absolutely, I, I I agree. I agree with all of that. I think you know, every every movie about politics has to balance the political and the personal, mm-hmm. and 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 find that find the right balance. And it's extremely hard to do. It's one of the hardest things to do in storytelling, I think. But every, but what you what you're saying about how we see violence through the experience of the farmers mm-hmm. i think that goes a long way to uniting those two spheres yeah in the right. movie um also this idea of kind of focusing on on this very small canvas you know something that happened over a very short period of time uh, well like you said uh, in the ranking episode how that represents these, his whole yeah, life something yeah. much bigger yeah his yeah. represents his whole represents uh his whole life and um you know the the history of Bolivia before and after as well. Mm-hmm. Well, we're talking Che Part Two, everyone. Uh, directed by, as we said, Steven Soderbergh. Have you heard of him? Sex Lies and Videotape, one of my favorite movies of all time. Out of Sight, uh, a great. Yes, I mean that's the one. I, that's my go-to as well. I mean, you know, uh, as as an Elmore Leonard fan, you 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 have to attach far more importance to a successful screen adaptation of Elmore Leonard's yeah, right, than you right. would most movies. But I think even in its own right, it's a fantastic movie. It's a great film. And then one that you should uh, appeal to you, The Limey. What a great movie. <laughs> With T- Terrence Stamp. Terrence Stamp? Yeah, ter- that's right. Terrence Stamp, The Limey. Mm-hmm. But just go right down the line. I mean, Aaron Brockovich, Traffic, you know, the Oceans trilogy, Magic Mike trilogy, Logan Lucky. He's had a varied career and yeah. a fascinating career. And he's just a, you know, he's just a, for me, he's just one of those guys where if he's directing a movie, I'll go see it. I'm the opposite, I think. Not that I I've actively dislike him, but I've never been compelled to see one of his movies. Oh, wow. Unless... Unless the movie itself interests me, his name attached to it does nothing for me, which is probably why it took me until now uh, a few weeks ago to see <laughs> Shea Part Two. And as soon as soon as I'm done recording this episode, I'm going to watch Shea Part One. I've been holding off because I don't want it to contaminate <laughs> our discussion. But I'm very excited about seeing that. So, and it's interesting. And as I think I said in the ranking episode, I feel exactly the same way about Benicio del Toro. I won't. Mm-hmm. make the effort to watch a movie just because he's in it. And yeah, I admire his work in this movie immensely. That I think we're on the same page on. I won't go mm. see a movie just because he's in it. 
But if I find the movie otherwise interesting, then, oh, what am I saying? I'll go see everything anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> this is all taking place in the in the context of your general lack of dis- discrimination. Yes, right. That's we, 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 that's that's fine. That's okay. As long as everyone knows that context, we can have this this uh, conversation. But well, you this know, film... more fool, more fool me because I because I missed out on. Yeah, right. Uh, a great movie, I think. Yeah, I, well, this film seventy nine percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, obviously. Spoiler alert, Che does die at the end of this movie. Uh, but maybe the other reason there's no Che Part 3 is a budget of $40 million, an opening weekend of 61000 In the USA, it made $748,000, and in the world, $8.6 million. So, yeah, there's no, there's, there's no Wakanda forever for Che. No, yeah. <laughs> And it's funny because even as the movie opens, you know when you are at the tail end of being able to raise money for the, you know, this kind of passion project that I assume Benicio and Steven Soderbergh wanted to do together. When the first things you see are IFC films, Wild Bunch, and Telecinco films, you realize, you know. Yeah, they, you've they, taken money from everyone in town. Everyone and their mother. <laughs> yeah, just yeah. hat in hand. And you, you've still come up short. Yeah, I, I, it's really interesting. I think I, it, 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 it's... Passion Project is a really interesting way of looking at it. Um, if Again, if I'd have... If I'd have thought that's what this movie was i probably would have gone and seen it but i thought it would be like a bastardization of 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 uh shay's life oh yeah basically i thought it was why'd you think that it was gonna be a i thought it would be a because of the people involved i thought it would be a hollywood biopic um you know Mm. and as i said you know i really enjoyed the motorcycle diaries and i didn't want to kind of dilute that gotcha um but I got it all wrong. You know, I got my perception was all wrong. They were doing this with more than the best of intentions. They were doing it with uh, really innovative filmmaking as well. Well, I'll be sure to loop that comment. <laughs> you have enough of those comments <laughs> by now, surely. <laughs> well, one of my first notes is uh, Steven, Steven Soderbergh is a a more interesting filmmaker and can make a better movie out of still pictures than most of our other directors in this year <laughs> can do, do with actual film. You know, it's, it's interesting. Sometimes the, the measure of a director is, is what they do with uh, still images. Mm-hmm. It's like, if you can't, if you can't photograph you can't direct a movie. You can't like direct a motion picture. Yeah, right. I think they're real. There's a there's there's a there's a definite correlation there, but it's also in you know this is where I realized that yes, we definitely should be doing this movie because this movie begins like pretty much all the sequels we've ever seen with a bunch of photographs. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's the just starts with like the biggest impasse ever. Yeah, and and you know it's it, it it kind of keys you into the sequel mindset immediately, and you know I I was still at this point thinking that this was a multi part story, 
mm. rather than a standalone movie. And at this point, I'm like, no, this is it's 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 going to be its own thing. Yeah, right. And we get a South, you know a South American geography lesson as well. I wrote that down. I, 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 I wrote down we get us being totally ignorant about the region. <laughs> yeah, I wrote down we had we get a sixth grade geography lesson. <laughs> yeah, which apparently I still need, um, <laughs> even even at my age. I, but I wondered. I mean, I'll find out imminently. But this is the last time I can speculate about this. It's like. How much is this recapping what happened in the first film? Or how much is this just complete, uh, you know, just just relates to this film alone? Is this an attempt to recap where Shay has been? Or I wish I could illuminate for you, but okay. as, <laughs> as I've previously said, I don't remember a lot from either of these movies. Yeah, 2009 was a total haze for you cinematically. 1992, no problem. <laughs> yeah, that's it. If it was see, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. You're, it's like cinematic Alzheimer's yeah. that you have. Um, Selective. And we get an opening crawl, you know, which is the staple of any good historical film, mm -hmm. and a to any two thousand and nine sequel apparently as well. Um, right. But <laughs> but it's you know it it, it it sort of reorients the audience to the time and the place that the movie starts in mm -hmm. uh which you don't know until the movie gets going how important that's gonna be because we're never gonna leave this time and place i think it's one of the interesting things to think about this couplet of films with che part one and che part two because you know for a time there maybe not as much now but for a time there it felt like everybody had a red shirt with che on the front of the shirt completely and yeah. it you know when you when you're struck Hence my with, resistance yeah when you're going to see right, a right. movie about it right and when you're struck with this kind of geography lesson at the beginning and and the first thing we learn is we're going to talk about bolivia and you realize that bolivia is where this story is going to take place i always start wondering how many people wearing those shirts knew this about I, the man I, I, you know mm -hmm. i i didn't i vaguely knew the circumstances of his death, but I, I, did not, I, I didn't know it was happening in Bolivia. Okay. And that's that's the great thing about this film, is it it doesn't underestimate the specificity of it taking place in Bolivia, because so much of this film is like, are these Bolivian revolutionaries going to accept this foreigner? Yeah. To lead them into revolution. And I just think that's that's a nuance that most biopics or history movies or whatever just don't pick up on. Sure. You know, you compare this to Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which I know is not, it's not, it's not, it's not like for like. But, but their idea of what South America is is completely generic. Like, Peru looks like Mexico. Yeah. This is the opposite end of the scale where each, within the region, each country's unique... Uh, history and society and culture is addressed, mm -hmm. which I think is a hard thing to do in a in a, in, in a historical movie. But it comes across very strongly. Yeah, and it's funny because when I think about the location of this movie, it looks so unique and different than any other movies I've I've seen. Mm. And obviously, it's a period piece, but it also kind of takes me back in a sense of 
you know, it, yeah, it's taking place in South America, but it feels like it, it, the locale of it seems like it could be Mexico or Southern California before any of us were here. Well, that's what's happened when, and again, something really difficult to capture in a history film, the sense of lived experience. Yeah, right. And that's what most history films, they're, they're like such a massive canvas that they never, you can never feel that recognition that it, it's a place like somewhere you might have been or mm-hmm. live in. Uh, but this movie definitely does that because you live with them through yeah. what's what happens in the movie and you 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 arrive you you know you you arrive with Shay basically yeah right uh, as he does into this entirely new environment and you kind of learn learn to live there the way they the way that he's learning to live yeah there. and you know as the narrative opens and Fidel Castro is going to be reading this letter from mm-hmm. Che saying, I'm resigning all of my commissions, all my posts, all my, you know, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And people are kind of asking, well, what's happening? What, is he coming back? What's, you know, and Fidel is kind of mum on the word. But I thought it was interesting that they choose to show us this moment between Fidel Castro and Che, where even Fidel Castro is saying, hey, maybe, why don't we wait a sec, a hot second here? Mm-hmm. And like, not do this right now. And it's almost prescient in the way of like, you know, the movie's almost telling you what's going to happen in this first moment. Yeah. That Fidel Castro is predicting it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That it won't go as well as it has in Cuba, you know? There's got to be a reason why he stayed in power for so long. The man is, you can say many things about him. Yeah. He is not a fool. Yeah, right. Yeah, and it, it, I think it's fascinating that, you know, this, that Shay who is both the return is both a legacy character in these two movies and also of course as you've alluded to this pop culture icon mm-hmm. he's reintroduced to us through a secret identity yeah yeah right he's the, the when we see him he's in disguise he's almost unrecognizable and i really like that i really like that choice yeah me too start it's like like kind of re-mystifying him uh, Could you pick up on that was so that we're so familiar with, right? All over again. Could you pick up on when they when they show him with his family? Mm. Like for the briefest of moments, I thought, are they all in Bolivia already? But then they had that scene where he's, yeah, you know, yeah, it's a little. I think it's it's sort of. I couldn't tell where he was when he was with his family. Is he in Cuba? Is he somewhere else? Is I think that's him in Cuba before he leaves. Okay. I may be wrong about that, but I also think the movie has that 1970s, you know, keep up, we're not yeah. going to tell you everything vibe about it, which I also like. Yeah, no, I'm okay with that. Because it's it sort of, you, you kind of... You don't really realize where the movie's going until, you know, day 26 comes up on the screen. It's like, oh, yeah, right. I see. This is a countdown, essentially, mm-hmm. to to his death. But before that, you're not really sure what direction the movie's going to take. And the movie's purposefully kind of keeping you in the dark, which right. is a very is a 70s habit that I really enjoy. And there's a couple and of things about... This is a about... very 70s-style movie. In yeah. so many... It's just... You know the way that the the way that dialogue is dialogue, the way it looks, the way it's shot, acted. Yeah, Mm. 
so it's it's modernistic not just in setting but also in style yeah and it's funny because as it well we see him entering the country yeah it's an interesting scene to watch because it had you know there are moments especially at the front of this movie with him entering the country with you know certain characters like uh franca potente kind of being followed you know it's like we're genre on the bus yeah well like we're genre flipping like we're getting a little espionage moment here I have the same. I have that exact same note. It feels like an espionage film as much as it does a biopic. Especially yeah. when he takes out his his uh, false teeth and reveals that he's wearing a bald cap. Right. Yeah. It's it's Mission Impossible. It like OG Mission Impossible, not the yeah. You know, <laughs> right. Not the the movie reboot. Like you know. But it felt it felt fully fledged and it was Martin interesting. Landau era. Yeah. It, I guess what struck me is because I. I know I'm watching a, a talented actor in Benicio del Toro, but he seems to be telling me that Che Guevara was a talented actor by the yes, manner in exactly. which he enters the country. And, mm-hmm. you know, when he's he's kind of like taking out the handkerchief and sort of dapping his forehead and he kind of looks doddering to a certain extent. And he's got a cough and how much that's to throw the people. <laughs> I love that that guy goes back to his sort of superior and he goes, yeah, he's yeah. just a guy. I can fucking let him in. <laughs> and, but then Che has that great line about when he's talking to the soldiers about how easy it is to to get into the country of Bolivia. Mm. You know? <laughs> yeah. But it all has this espionage feel. It does. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, that's another... I think I think that continues on into the movie when you know the 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 CIA get involved and the Bolivian special forces. Um, it's uh, that kind of that goes further into the movie than just this kind mm-hmm. of you know Mission Impossible style fun. Something I noticed here is this how well paced the editing is. Mm-hmm. Like scenes are not too short; they're not too long. They don't they don't make that mistake that movies set in beautiful countries do where they linger on the scenery they just take a snapshot of it and and go and move on yeah yeah it's not about looking at this beautiful landscape but at the same time you can't deny that it's there and yeah right right right. so it's good but it knows just when to judge that cutoff point but there's no moment in this movie i think one of the strengths of the movie is it never feels indulgent not at all yeah yeah even um even now, the celebrity meet and greet moment, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, and again, it goes back to, to sequel storytelling, the characters, you know, characters coming back from the original movie are now famous for what they did in the first movie. And this is a no truer than Che Guevara oh, I think, yeah. in any of the films we've looked. But, you know, what a great moment realizes, when that one guy who shook his hand says, I'd like to go back Shea and Guevara. shake it again. <laughs> you just met Che Guevara. Yeah. Yeah. It's. It's excellent. It's such. It's so well done. Uh, and but also this is where he transitions into his classic hero look. Yeah. This is where he puts on his superhero costume. Yeah. Essentially, right, and he right. becomes the Shay that we're familiar. He becomes with. the man on the t-shirt. He becomes basically yeah. Yeah. He becomes the man that, that he, instead of a mirror, he has that t-shirt, and he <laughs> right. just kind of makes his hair and his beard and his hat match that. Yes. But the, uh, we're also, it's interesting, I mean, we're kind of joking around about, you know, different ways that he's being introduced to us, but uh, another important distinction is we meet Ernesto the Doctor. 
Yeah. At this point, because he has to, uh, we, we, and so we're being reintroduced to the various different aspects of Che Guevara in the, in these opening scenes. Mm -hmm. And one of them is, you know, uh, and in a sense, the most important one when it comes down to the man, he's, he's a guy, you know, he's a caregiver. Yeah. He wants to help people. But he also has his own health problems, which are kind of going to do him in later. Yeah. And that's his, tr- and he, so he's kind of in this mold of the hero with the tragic flaw. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when, when he can't have his medicines, he's half as effective. Sure. As a leader. But and I think, I think this, the point that you just brought up is a, a really important point for the film on, on the whole, because that was one of my takeaways from this movie. I assume within their research and 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 what they were looking at was the man himself and what he, mm. he was willing to give up and what he was willing to give. And yeah. you know, we were speaking earlier about the villagers in these, you know, small little mountain villages who have an army, a new army just, you know, happen upon them, but the the grace by which Che Guevara always seems to you know, his his underlings are always coming up and saying, yeah, we took some pigs, we took some milk, we took this. And he's like, we'll give them money. He's always, mm. you know, he he never wants to take just to take. He's He truly does want to help and try to yeah. make their lives better. And that sense of the man is permeated throughout the movie in a way in which he'll make decisions that work against himself, too, in a way, which I found really because, interesting. Because, yeah. And because he's the hero of the movie, we're you know we're we have the license for some romanticization, but I don't think it ever gets out of hand. No, like you ne- you, you you never miss the men the underlying menace of what's going on. The sense that yeah, and it's re- there's a really important line early on, and they do I, say sure we took it. the milk, we took the pigs. Yeah, uh, you know, and he, and he you know he says we've you know we found experience that if we don't do this with you know if we don't do this without violence it's not going to work yeah and i think that's a really important line in in the sand mm-hmm. because when you're dealing with that kind of character you know what you know how far they'll go yeah that they're going to do the right thing up to a point and then they're going to resort to armed conflict so that was a really important... That cuts through some of the romanticization, which I think is fine in the context of this movie. And God knows we've, you know, we've seen the opposite viewpoint enough times that we can, we can have a, you know, we can have a movie that puts the opposing view that, you know, there are positive aspects to communism. Yeah, right. Because we've seen so much of the counter argument, we can redress that a little bit. But overall, I think it's fairly balanced, and they kind of keep that glorification of of what the guerrillas are doing in check with these kind right. of moments and lines that show that they're sort of thinking through the problem a little bit. They're sort of going, well, you know, in the end, are they not just they well? Are what I kind of yeah. They created a garrison in these people's homes. I mean, yeah, we never right. forget that. Right. We don't ever forget. But what I also think is interesting is Soderbergh, you know, they within the script, they also take the time to kind of show, yes, the guerrillas are this and they want to make a better life. But like you said, they'll resort to violence because they know it yeah. will come to that. 
but there's also nuance in the sense of the villagers themselves who say they want a better life, but also understand that the status quo, like, you know, it's the easier path. So I'm conflicted because, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I don't really want trouble. Trouble might mean trouble oh, for the yeah. country could mean big trouble for me. And so that tearing, um, you know, at the outside outer edges of, of what they want and need was always represented in the movie. And I thought that was interesting and nuanced, too. It, and I love that shit these days. I don't know what has happened to me, but I'm, you know, the, the I just I long for the C-span of it all. <laughs> it's like I want to I want to get I want to get into the weeds on this stuff, like all the stuff in the, about party infighting and ideological splits and factions. Yeah, I mean this this turns so many people up. I'm fascinated by this level of of detail. The more the more parliamentary, the better, as far as I'm concerned. I remember the, I remember this happening a few years ago when I saw the Danish political series Bergen, uh, Bor- sorry Bergen Borgen, mm-hmm. which is about Danish coalition politics. Mm. And I remember every review sort of said, you know, it takes about two or three episodes, and then you get used to the you know uh, getting into the weeds on Danish coalition politics. Uh, and I, and then and then you start to really enjoy the show and I, I like literally minute one I'm in there like it, it uh, like there's no yeah right and I'm reading a book at the moment about Man, uh, Manchester in the 80s and it's kind of like an overview of the music and the culture and the art and politics and it's the you know it's the part it's the kind of local government aspect of it that I'm really drawn to. The rest of it is kind of passe for me now. It's such yeah. a weird kind of... So a movie like this, I really respond to because uh, I appreciate the, the detail. Like, most people think of it as overkill. Maybe this uh-huh. is why I like The Phantom Menace more than most people. <laughs> but... Like I, I I just live for that kind of detail now. I I've always like felt the same way about from my view of this. Pe- it's what's missing from my view of this period. You know? Yeah, I've always felt the same way about say The Wire. You know, there's a show called The Wire, and in the first season, it's like, I don't know, there's ten episodes, and it's like episode six when they finally get the wire. Yeah, you right. know what I mean. It's like all the nuance and all the infighting kind of political stuff that you have to do to get to that point is really difficult. Yeah. And they try showing yeah. how long it takes. Well, why don't we take yeah. a break and then we'll come back. Sounds good to me. All right. I think we're going to meet Lou Diamond Phillips. <laughs> I believe we are. All right. We'll be right back. I like to think I know something about beer, but nowadays even I get overwhelmed when confronted by the exhaustive selection of craft beers they have at bars, breweries, and even grocery stores. Back in the day you had one, maybe two craft beers to choose from, and if you were confused, you ordered a Guinness. But in beer stations like San Diego, the craft beer options lately are in double, sometimes even triple, digits. So what's a beer drinker to do? You need what I need, the Vegas Beer Guys. Your beer of choice should be a perfect blend of malt and hops. And so a live show about beer needs that same balance. And the Vegas Beer Guys matches beer expert Dan Aker with self-proclaimed beer novice Stephen J. Weiss. 
The results are eminently drinkable. They're on Facebook. They're on Instagram. They'll try new beers. They'll tell you about beer. Think of them as your beer sherpas guiding you up a foamy-headed mountain to reach the peak of your pint. God, I need a beer. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen. Tom and I are here discussing the 2009 sequel, Che Part 2, directed by Steven Soderbergh. He's not a hack. No, definitely not. Uh, so, I think I mentioned this in our ranking episode, but this is kind of part, you know... I, I'm of two minds of it, because I'm looking at my notes now, and I, I have things <laughs> written down like... He meets his young sh- soldiers. They're all impressed. He meets more friends. They're shucking corn. Meets more men. That repeated nature of things happening over and over again over 10 or 15 minutes. Yeah. I understand intellectually why it's there, what Soderbergh is doing. Yeah. These men are preparing for war, the sort of monotony of it. You were talking about the splitting factions before we went out to commercial. That idea of... of Kind of what we were talking about in the ranking episode about most movies have this romanticized nature about what war is. And these characters, I think, had a romanticized notion of what it would be when they said yes. Yes, absolutely. So I get why it's all in there. But at certain points during this movie, I'm like, I get it. You can move on. Let's get to Lou Diamond Phillips. (laughs) But it's to, to me, it's more the Lou Diamond Phillips that puts me out of the movie. Is that right? Like, the corn husking scene, draw, you know, it draws you in. And then we get what is the most chilled training montage I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. It's like the European art movie version of Mission Prep. Um, yeah. So, and, and that and that, that draws me into the movie. And it's sort of like, that scene was so 80s, we had to throw Lou Diamond Phillips into the mix. <laughs> <laughs> but though I recognize that he's, you know, he had a, he had a millennial reinvention and... You know, this is when he's going off and doing uh, really interesting stuff. Like, uh, what's the AMC show he did? The yeah, uh, is it Dark Winds? Yeah, no. Is he in Dark Winds? Right? Maybe it's not Dark Winds. I don't know. But but at the same time, it's Lou Diamond Phillips. It's kind of like what happens when he turns up in in the first season of Twenty Four, and then <laughs> two episodes later, Dennis Hopper turns up, and you're just like, is this just Kiefer Sutherland's fever dream that we're watching right now? <laughs> These are interesting moments to me, though. I like the idea. Of... Oh, I agree. I know. I'm. I'm just like, you know, my. It's one of a handful of moments in the movie where it feels a little too Hollywood for me. Just because he's in it's it, kind of. Well, because you know, it's this kind of record. You know, because it's they do such a good job of kind of blurring the distinctions between actor and character with Benicio Del Toro. Yeah, I was just going like, to say, Benicio kind of disappears into Che. Yeah. So when you having see... Having a recognizable face. Yeah, like when this. you see a recognizable face and a nice white shirt that looks pressed and like a sweater tied around his neck, yeah. his shoulders. But at the same time, content-wise, I like the idea of the head of a communist party coming in and saying, yeah. this place is different than Cuba. You can't win. Yeah. And, like, all the soldiers having to hear that right as they're beginning, you know? Oh, yeah, I love this. That's the scene that... And then I'm drawn back in again by all this party infighting, which apparently is 
the most compelling thing to me in my old age. <laughs> but it, but you know, it's these point this point in the movie where all that criticism that Del Toro gets for overplaying his roles kind of disappears because he gets this big, probably one of the biggest historical characters ever yeah. to play. Right. And he chose chooses to go in the opposite direction. He plays it quiet and relaxed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a brilliant choice. Well, not only... Is... Especially for an actor who, who can go both ways, shall we say. <laughs> that was diplomatic, Tom. <laughs> 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 we'll get there. I'm sure we'll do the last Jedi at some point this year, and we sure. can have a long conversation about that. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. I mean, since we're on that topic, because recently in some episode you were complaining about Sam Rockwell and how he forces you to <laughs> to to watch the movie on his terms, is yeah. is that how you feel about some of Benicio's choices, or do you think he does it better? I guess. I actually, I mean, I, I don't have a, I don't have an issue with him. I, all, all I'd say is that I'm not immediately drawn, drawn to it. To, I'm not immediately drawn to his films. Okay. I mean, on the other, on the other hand, this is Dario from License to Kill. So how much can I <laughs> of hold against him? That's, really, that's the one you remember. No, 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 he's very, he's very good, but you know, he's, he's always going to be Dario. I mean, you know, he's a, he's a great Bond henchman. Nobody can take that away from him. I agree. Nobody can take away Dario from him. No, (laughs) but this, it's just that, you know, this, this is, I'm continually impressed that he keeps making such good choices. Mm Mm-hmm. Even, and he has the capacity, you know, he has the, the, the subject matter to go bigger sure yeah and he he resists that unless it's absolutely the only way to play it yeah but what i also i was going to say this earlier what i found interesting is that that kind of quiet charisma works for the audience and the character because it's yeah one of the things that struck me as i was watching this movie was he was portraying che in a way in which like his quiet leadership would compel me to follow him. Yeah. I found it really interesting. The way that he shot and the way that, that his dialogue kind of flows, it's very Godfather like, uh, huh. He's a, he's a kind of a Don Corleone fake, like a, a Don Vito Corleone fake. Right. Um, definitely not a Michael. Not a Michael. (laughs) Despite Michael's links to Cuba. Yeah. No, he's yeah, he's nobody. And, you know the nobody's way that, gonna be caught in this movie saying, you know, I try to get out there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Fredo, out the bellow, you fuck. Um, forgot how to act. Uh, the <laughs> sorry, just throw that in. But but it's you know it's the it's the same dynamic of of uh you know the benevolent despot, the guy who is what he what he represents within his organization is where he is threatening and menacing but well, the, the man behind it is is anything but that right and that's what makes the godfather one of the greatest movies of all time is you have that uh dynamic going on and it's just, it's just taking place on a historical scale here right and what we're gonna get one of those scenes coming right up because i mean first we find out about like fidel is still helping he's sending money but there's a real I, by the way i really hope there's more of 
Damien Bashir's Ooh, he's good. Castro in shit. Because he's in this movie for minutes, yeah. and I was instantly hooked. Yeah, I, I was like, I was like, oh, this is Fidel Castro. Mm-hmm. Um, he's really it's like good. when you see Steve, when you see Stephen Graham play Al Capone in Boardwalk Empire. It's like, oh, that's Al Capone. Mm-hmm. Everyone else has been getting it wrong. This is Al Capone. <laughs> <laughs> but we have this scene coming up in which some of Che's men—they're talking to that guy with the jeep. And they, like, kind of mm-hmm. give him that warning of, like, you could talk, but if you do talk... You know what I mean? It's, it was very Godfather-like in the sense of, like, you might have an accident. <laughs> like, I'm not saying I'm going to kill you, but, you know, it was... He was yeah. he was speaking but, all but it, in gray, but it was black and white. What yeah. would happen if he chose to talk? Definitely. It's, you know, the balancing out the decency of their intentions with their underlying menace. Yeah. Something else I noticed at this point, I don't know if it was complete visual coincidence, but the gorillas sit in the forest like actual gorillas. Yeah, right now. In, like in a nature documentary. Yeah, yeah I saw, yeah. I, it's like, like I the you same thing. Diane Fossey to, to, yeah. wander, you know, to wander in. And I, I wonder whether that is, that was a choice or... I started thinking you know, I was going to see a... Sigourney Weaver. Yeah. <laughs> is it is it you know well this is you know this is patreon only information but um maybe <laughs> maybe it was a see no evil hear no evil yeah right <laughs> uh you know situation where they're just like you guys will kind of look like gorillas and you know what you're gorillas, you're gorillas. <laughs> <laughs> but i had that thought yeah like, more than once and of all the of all the animals in all the colors, Soderbergh could have picked. He went for a white horse. I know. <laughs> what is going on in two thousand and nine? What are these white horses just roaming free? <laughs> I wonder if they're all Holly... the same white horse. They just went from just it's went just from like... production to production. <laughs> it's just the TriStar horse. Yeah, is like out of work. <laughs> Hasn't had a gig since that logo. It needs. <laughs> 2009 was his renaissance. <laughs> but it's funny because they back up that scene with with threatening the guy with the jeep by also bringing, like, I think it's a scene shortly after that where Che has the doctor come in and, like, help the kids, the kids with the eye problem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah. so it's that idea of the benevolent he works dictator. On the himself. Yeah. yeah, right. But all of this is convincing the villagers to, you know, allow them to wander in periodically you know allow them to take what they need but to pay for it like yeah you know it's a it's a goodwill tour (laughs) and when it comes to that biopic stuff you've got to listen to the lines that they're not saying because they sort of have him work on uh the child's eye and that's it that's there's no right you know he used to be a doctor or you know yeah (laughs) yeah yeah uh, it's all inferred. It's none of it is is spelled out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's uh, something I was I was just gonna point out that struck me at this point. We've talked a lot about the visuals in the movie, but the soundscape is also yeah magnificent because it, most of it's naturalistic and the audio really shines because you can you've got this kind of background hum of pigs squealing and goats bleeding, yeah. Bird song. There's always wind. Really There's always a rustling breeze, yeah. like leaves walking in dirt. And it, it makes it it's so, so much more interesting than underscoring mm-hmm. to listen to, I think. 
I'm with you. Uh, even though what's happening is dramatic enough to to necessitate underscoring, I'm glad they went for natural a naturalist soundscape over yeah over that. And yeah, we have like a, a little mini after, to go with the South American geography lesson. We get like an after school special on communism, uh, where the movie kind of takes both sides. Like it understands the need for it, but also <laughs> the people have to fight their innate drives because this is where they. The food arrives and then the soldiers start yeah. honking cream. Right. <laughs> and, and, uh, and the the kind of captain or whatever. You expect Troy McClure to come yeah, in. Yeah, their going, superior right? has to come Wrong. in and say, hey. <laughs> what it, yes. And I just love that when he asks them what the fuck they're doing, they all just look at him like he's crazy and say, we're hungry. Yeah, but that's the uh, that's the point being made, isn't it? It's like, well, yeah. this is this is a food for us, so why wouldn't we eat it? Or, mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but, but that's uh, the, you know, you know, that's the point about communism, right. isn't it? It's sort of like you absolutely can't do that. Yeah, you can never <laughs> do that. And then because I think right after that, we have that scene where Che is you know, going to bluntly tell the troops how hard this is going to be. What one thing I always liked in this movie is that Che himself, he's never high on the hog. He's taking less than anybody else. He's trying to live by example uh, for what they need to do and have to do. But it seems like he's the only one or maybe one of three people in this guerrilla army that is willing and able to do what is necessary. And yeah, in one way, it feels like that was his undoing, you know? Yeah, it, it's this. These scenes kind of remind me of because uh, we essentially get like a mutiny. Yeah, right. They have um, that fight. It's about yeah, y- you know, yeah. It's it's like a it's a slow breakdown of authority in the jungle. It reminds me of like early Werner Herzog, mm-hmm. like a Fritz Caraldo or a Gear Wrath of God. Right. Again, like the 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 event, coverage of the events is pacey. We never linger on anything too long. The progression of events is what matters. Um, it's it's kind of really well well handled. Did you have trouble distinguishing between the guerrillas and the police when they Often. turn up? When they have that firefight, I thought it was chase soldiers <laughs> that were it wasn't just yeah that were <laughs> losing. <laughs> I didn't realize I if that's intentional or not. I, yeah. I didn't realize that they were the guys hiding. <laughs> I thought they were the guys coming down the hill. And it made me wonder: is that like, is that a guerrilla tactic? Is that like, so you can't tell, you know, that people might sh- not shoot you because they might think you're on their side? Or yeah, I don't know. Because presumably they didn't do have them look the same by accident. Yeah, they just ordered the wrong costume in that day i mean (laughs) that's not what i think happened i think they would have found a way around that if that's what did happen we're we're used to in this country it reminds me not you know terrible to have to bring him up but i remember that old bill cosby bit about the revolutionary war it's like coin flip you know and it says uh call it (laughs) so the americans call it tails it's tails what do you want all right well uh we're going to wear whatever the fuck we want. We're going to hide in the hills and the trees and the bushes. And you all, you got to wear your red coats and march in a straight line. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, <laughs> to, to use our frame of reference, it's like when uh, when Anakin and Obi-Wan are fighting with the same color lightsaber. Yeah, that's right. 
<laughs> Seems odd. And I like this. Uh, th- th- I mean, there's not much comedy in the in the movie. No, yeah. Cor- correct, correctly. <laughs> but um, this chief of police is uh, got a little bit of Inspector Clouseau about him, I think. <laughs> and this is where I note one of Benicio del Toro's rare big moments mm-hmm. when he screams, five years of wasted work." And this is like, you know, earned, yeah, earned bigness. I think we talked about that in the ranking episode. Is that when Franco kind of is up on you and you go, "Oh, that's that's Benicio del Toro playing that part." Is that when he <laughs> says Franca shouldn't come back and she does, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah and I and like, I think by now, seen what happened to her in the Bourne movies? I didn't think she was going to last long. Yeah, <laughs> in this movie. Yes, exactly. Because we're, you know, we you mentioned the the day countdown, because I think we're around day 113. I'm on my notes right now. Mm-hmm. But but uh, it, you start getting that kind of, once you see, like, up to 113, you start to get that impending doom feeling of, yeah. you know, each step we see is going to be a step worse, below yeah. where they were uh, previously kind of a thing. Yeah. And this is where I have the, the this the first English spoken in the movie where we go to see the CIA yeah. and the Bolivian government. And, you know, the espionage element of the movie comes right by all these shadowy long shots of CIA guys in armchairs. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I really liked about it is is that the acting fits with the tone of the movie. I mean, a, a lesser movie would, would play these characters up as big hammy American stereotypes. But the despite where they're coming from ideologically they're matching when it comes to the kind of soft natural flowing acting that we're seeing throughout this movie so the universe feels whole mm-hmm. now are you talking about the reporter damon. or matt damon no before matt damon is when we're when the uh the it's the bolivian president uh-huh um and that he's been oh, visited by the by CIA the cia yeah that's right yeah and you know you could you could see this be going down a caricatured path and it doesn't mm-hmm. because the movie is in many ways anti-american um but uh they never they never succumb to that temptation yeah i think well cuz it's also <clears throat> in fact it might be right behind, before that that scene between the president and the cia cuz you're also starting to see the kind of fractal nature of their relationship with the villagers because there's like yes. sometimes the villagers are gone and they just take things mm-hmm. and chase says leave money like they have to be reminded to leave money that kind of thing and so you get you get that nature of the kind of the the basest form of humanity of like well now i'm gonna take because i need yeah but it's you know che is always like the one person, the person at the top is like the most on honest, the most honorable. He's always the one that has to remind others. This is how hard it's going to be. Leave fucking money. If you take something like we're here to help these people, you know? Yeah. But when you start seeing, seeing that, that fractured nature within the, the gorilla unit itself, you, you know, you're just, you're like, this is not going to yeah. go well. This, it feels this is inevitable. Gonna, yeah. yeah. And Shay uh, reveals himself to be a big old name dropper when he talks about uh, getting John Paul Sartre and Bertrand Russell to start a letter campaign. Right. It's like, it's interesting because he's already dining out on his own celebrity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what the celebrity 
that we're attaching to him is something that he was also exploiting himself to get shit done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. You know, if he had that connection, why wouldn't he use it? But for the most part, I mean, he'll use it to to get something he needs, but within the the community itself, when he's talking to villagers, he's not pimping himself in that way. He's no, no, always no, I, under I, yeah, radar. Just, yeah. He's you know, he's he's protective of of his namesake in that way because he doesn't want to overshadow what it is they're trying to do with his own, you know, infamy. Well, then, if that was true, he'd still have the bald cap and the thing on, because now he's, like, well, sitting there like Superman. No, I'm kidding. You want to be um, comfortable. No, you have... Yeah. <laughs> he's got... <laughs> he's wearing his own Che Guevara t-shirt. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then we we get the CIA group training, and there's a moment yeah, where I have it looks that like note. Spectre, Spectre Island, mm-hmm. where there's kind of like, yes, you know... Right. Uh, <laughs> And I and I this is where I have the note. Americans are the bad guys? Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> and then somebody says something about Vietnam, and I go, "Okay, that settles it." They it make, it makes sense now. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's that's all interesting stuff, and and it's right in here I too. While that. that's happening, that is when the reporter shows up, and the mm-hmm. reporter just kind of yeah. wants to confirm and like see Che. Yes. But in the end, it turns out he was working with for Fidel anyway, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. My next note is Cobbled Street Capture, which is a great spy film moment mm-hmm. where they're they're caught on the, the cobbled street. Like, it's like something from a John McCarry adaptation, almost. And again, it's all natural soundscape, so you hear the, you hear the feet on the stone. Mm-hmm. And it adds to the suspense of it all. And then we... I went... Then we... I almost... I almost had a retro orgasm when I saw that '60s removable keyboard <laughs> that he that, that guy had in his it had like a piece of modern day technology in like a '60s retro style. You like that? Fucking awesome! Then we get Matt Damon, don't we? Then we get Matt Damon, yeah. Uh, which is a you know it's a it's a he speaks remarkably good Spanish. He doesn't sound like an American doing an accent. I noticed. But, um, I noted that too. I I noted like it kind of reminded me of uh, what were we doing? Uh, the Omen. You know, with yeah, it's the opposite of Gregory Peck. Yeah, with Peck doing the <laughs> what was it Italian? Yeah, he was doing it Italian as Gregory Peck. Yeah, <laughs> and this does not sound like Matt Damon doing Spanish. It sounds like a, a native speaker, yeah. a fluent speaker. But you know, I just. Again, it just throws you out of the movie for a moment, and I don't understand stunt casting. I think in it that is way. important that you. It is stunt casting, yeah, and I, I think it's. I think it's just important to. To keep it as anonymous as possible mm-hmm. for the story you're trying to tell, um, because it, it's going to take you out of it, no matter how good he is and how good a job he's doing. I think. I get what it's you not mean. His fault, but. Because, of course... Like he, but he's also got to know, like, are people going to go, why is Matt Damon in 10 seconds of this movie? Yeah, right. Uh, actually, that'd be a pretty that'd be a pretty terrible thing to say if you were Matt Damon, wouldn't you? I, I think you, you shouldn't be caught saying, are people just going to go, that's not enough Matt Damon in my movie? <laughs> 
But you run the risk when you put a big star like that in of making the audience wonder for a while, is he going to come back? Am I going to see him again? Like, what's going on? Where's Matt Damon? Matt Damon's not in this anymore? Is he going to rescue Shay? Yeah, right. Take him down to the river? (laughs) Like Rambo in the last scene coming in. Yeah. Just like bullets over his chest with the M60 saving the day. Mm-hmm. But that, no, the, the move, this movie doesn't play that way. No, yeah. Uh, nothing is telegraphed, not even that farmhouse explosion. No. That bird song ends and then chaos. Yeah. It's an amazing moment. It, it's, it, like, it's really hard to do to to do that a scene like that without telegraphing what's going to happen. Yeah, right. And the you know as as a lot of this movie is it's all done in camera as well like it's all part of the right. same continuous shot which helps I think. Does that explosion happen before or after the president says uh Che is not in this country? I think it's just before. Okay. Cuz that's my that's my uh, next note. Um and also, this is where I started thinking about what's going on now in, in Gaza. Um, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the military response to kind of starve them out. Yeah. Essentially what's going on now. Yeah. With uh, what they're trying to do to the Palestinians there. Uh, and, it, you know, any great historical movie is going to be cyclically right. relevant. Some but, tactics uh, will stay the know, same. Just, well, yeah, and it's depressing, isn't it? Yeah. It's like... It's like even the even uh, despot even twenty twenty three despots have no new ideas. But it's funny you bring that up because that's how I felt about that moment where the president is denying. Yeah. What's plainly true to the entire country, you know. Yeah. And I always wondered. Spoiler alert for the second time. Once Trey is shot and dead at the end of this movie, <laughs> it's not a spoiler alert when it's an established historical fact. Mike. Well, I don't think that's how movie-going audiences look at it, though. Spoiler alert: the Titanic sinks. <laughs> but I always, I always, you know, you could almost do an SNL skit out of that president having to. You know, congratulate himself by saying, hey, everyone, we killed Che. The guerrilla army is defeated. Didn't you say he wasn't in the country? Well, let's not get into fucking semantics now. (laughs) The important thing is I got him. Yeah. Yeah. We brought him into the country and then we killed him. Yeah. (laughs) In one motion. And something another another choice, and I, I mean, I, all the kind of choices of how to represent violence in this movie are great. But one I particularly admired, and again, the audio of this movie is really interesting. Uh, we hear battles going on yeah. off screen yeah. through the radios. The battles that are taking place in the mines are conveyed through radio reporting. Right, and obviously, this will help you budgetarily. But I don't think that's the main reason for doing it. Mm-hmm. I think. It's the effect. It's a judicious use of action instead of, you know, instead of breaking from where we are and going off and seeing what's going on there. I think it's much better that we hear about it over the radio. Yeah, right. And, you know, when when these guys start to kind of, you know, die, it's, I realize, like, they're not fleshed out particularly... 
in uh, in the movie so far. I mean, you're right. You've got you basically you you see a lot of them being introduced to each other, but you don't really develop the characters in no. a meaningful way. Yet you feel it. But the dead, you feel it. The death yeah. sting like any main character. Yeah. Like this movie's almost done a a kind of a really good job, kind of collectivizing its cast almost, where everyone's ev- everyone's loss is as significant as the other. Is this because th- there's that moment where the like his friend, the guy he's a little bit closer to, dies? Mm-hmm. Is that the moment where we get the trees? That that great shot where it's sort of the his point of view, looking so, up at yeah. the trees, like wave the beauty yeah. of the trees waving in the wind as he's bleeding out. And just to keep it in suspense, there are some choices in the movie I didn't like. Okay, he's got a little. He's got a little bit of the the. Uh, the 2009 camera DTs occasionally. Steven I think Soderbergh, he's I think that's just a Soderbergh a little bit here and there. I think that's a Soderbergh thing. I think he does that quite a bit where he's hand okay. he's hand holding a lot. Yeah. And well it's like it, it feels like an uh, like an addiction that's under control. Okay. Like yeah. If he kept doing it, you know, if he couldn't stop doing it. Um it would be a problem, but it's not a problem he's got it under check. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. I think I it's never bothered like a... me in the sense of even if it's a, a close up on someone and he's hand holding hmm. and the camera might drift a little bit, but it's not it's you know, it's it's not a rob I don't know, there's some there's some motion sickness stuff, like when they're in the car. Mm-hmm. When they're when the you know, it's like it's obviously a car like the camera's in the car following another car. To me it's, it's always like been this is the way I'm doing it. Fuck off. Well, yeah. And I like. Yeah. But but like when I, I say, watch Rob Zombie think he's making exactly. art out of it, then it annoys yeah, exactly. me. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. But it's not a choice I particularly care for. Okay. Fine. But the, he the the you know we get that bleached look that we've been talking about in pretty much all the two thousand nine. Yeah. But it's a again it's like a pretty good. It's one of the good bleached looks. <laughs> it's, it's it's one of the better ones. It's one of the better ones. It's a little bit, a little bit too millennial. Like the color palette overall in this movie is perfect, but this is a kind of a little bit of a fly in the ointment. But if you say so, also get a scene of hot. Yeah, and I, you know, I want to be, I want to be fair. We've picked apart so many movies mm. in so many different ways. I don't want <laughs> this movie to get off, get off the hook, even if overall it's firing on all cylinders. Sure. This is this is the uh, by the way the only other instance of horse punching I've seen in a movie since Blazing since Saddles. Blazing Saddles yeah. <laughs> yeah but the tone of it is very different <laughs> very well because this is the moment too where where Chase sick Peter left for the day yeah well, <laughs> sorry I jumped on your thing I'm sorry you're fine it's almost worth it. No, it was absolutely <laughs> worth it. But but narratively, we're in the moment where I was speaking to earlier, where Che had left medicine mm-hmm. back at the, his original camp that he needs. Now he's sick. When you're, you know, when the one person who's always like, if if you're feeling like shit, you could look to Che and you could draw a little inspiration. Yeah. But now it's like everything's falling apart at the seams because. <laughs> the man, yeah, the man is sick and like yeah. whipping a horse. <laughs> you know, that's, yeah, that's true. You know. Yeah, he has that moment, and and it's it's one of you know it's 
there's moments like that where you go, well, this is why you cast Benicio del Toro. Yeah. Because he can turn on a sixpence like that. Sure. And yeah, the, the the other thing is like from this point onwards, when anyone looks to Shay, he's like wheezy from Toy Story Two. He's just kind of like <gasps> the whole yeah. All the yeah. Time, so he's like he's like Mark Wahlberg in uh, giving the speech in Planet of the Apes. Mm-hmm. He's got that great you'll line. Have to pay money to find out more. About he's it. got that great line. Well, I don't know if it's a great line, but but I guess within their circumstances, I thought it was interesting because he he says. When he's at his lowest point, I think it's when he says, we have the chance to be true men right now. Mm. Uh, you know, that idea of sort of being able to stand up when you feel like you can't. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, completely. But I also, you know, because I think we're at the point where um, they go back to the old man's house, the old man that we've revisited several mm-hmm. times. And... yes. Granted, I'd seen this movie before, but I didn't really remember much of any of it. And when Famke Patente goes into that room, I was like, that guy is not sick and you guys are fucked. Like, I saw that coming yeah. a mile away. I was like, oh, no, it really is going downhill. It is. And the cross-cutting of the scenes in the locales does a really good job of yeah. building the suspense about the ambush as well. It's really nicely done. And... Yeah, because we're, we're on that moment, moment where that old man takes the army down, or yeah, takes the gorillas down to the river, but had you know had a previous conversation with the actual army, and it was that mm-hmm. moment you were talking about in the ranking episode of watching the murder of war through his eyes as it's happening, yeah, which is devastating. And this, yeah, just the you know just the surprise more than anything else of of how abruptly it happens and that it really, that moment really got to me yeah. as something that you don't normally see in a war movie uh at least not in that way mm-hmm. where you have to kind of you, you know you you can't even you can't even enjoy the sensationalization of of the violence you 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 know you would have to be like a literal <laughs> you'd have to be a literal sadist to react positively to mm-hmm. this moment. Yeah. Right. Whereas when you see violence you can you can kind of compartmentalize it as aesthetically pleasing, but you know, if you're if you're watching this guy's reaction and you're not feeling anything but horror, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. So it's a good it'd be a good sociopath test. <laughs> but but screen violence that that's the that's one of the big problems with it is is it often doesn't have that moral dimension mm-hmm. that wants you to ask questions about it. Um, yeah, but so it's a really, a really interesting departure from the norm. All right, let's wipe away our tears and take a break, and then we'll come back. Yeah. All right. I need a stiff drink <laughs> of, of cream. Yeah. <laughs> we'll be right back, everybody. If you like podcasts like I do, boy, do I have a treat for you. You need to stay on target and check out the Sounds and Cinema podcast. Listen as your host, sound designer and music creator, Tony Parham, and co-host, musical performer and sound lover, Derek Hansen, D-Rock if you're nasty, 
and I am, discuss all things sound related to film, television, stage, and theatrical productions. They discuss environmental sounds, bioacoustics, dialogue, the nature of communication through sound, but as an added bonus, they drink beer and try to... Stay on target! Find them wherever you get your podcasts and listen to the pure mania of a man who can charitably be described as Doug the Dog from Up, and another man with a soothing and sultry voice trying to get that man to... Stay on target! That's the Sounds and Cinema Podcast. Tune in and listen to the sounds they are creating just for you. We're back once again, ladies and gentlemen, finishing up with Che Part 2. The movie that topped both our lists. Yeah. Against our, you know, (laughs) we didn't want to, but in the end you had to. We wanted to give it to a piece of trash, but yeah. <laughs> sometimes movies are prestige for a reason. Exactly. Not often, <laughs> but sometimes. Well, as we were going out, I know that we we were talking about this ambush of the army against the guerrillas and the old man watching kind of in horror, but it's, uh, it's Franca Potente's character that she's one of the people that dies. Yeah. And then... I believe the president puts them on display, right? Yeah, the posed photographs. Yeah. It's is interesting like the this the way this movie uses photography because it's less of a document at this point than a glamorization. Mm-hmm. Because he looked, you know, he's he's kind of dressed to the nigh posing with the bodies and the, yeah. the disparity is very clear and how staged it all is. Mm-hmm. And of course, this will come back. This will circle back later when it gets to taking the picture. You know those incredibly iconic pictures of Shay in his last moments, right? And how that is kind of a th- those are kind of propaganda images more than anything else. Yeah, right. But it's fun, you know. It just so it's it's you you come into this history or rather this movie maybe not knowing a lot of the history of Bolivia, this yeah. president, you know that kind of thing. But in the moment, it feels like such a despicable act, displaying mm-hmm. the you know human bodies in that way, and like you said, yeah. you kind of dress into the nines, and and then the contrast is made with Shaves directly breaking bread with the local children. Yeah, right. Um, you know, they he's this is one of the moments that you were talking about where you know the the consensus is to steal the bread, but um. He's the one who's kind of breaking it up and yeah, playing right. with the children, and sort of trying to be reassuring to to the people at the village. Well, and he makes a speech to the locals, which I think would hit hardest in this, you know, partial defense of communism to American audiences. Is that what he, the state of healthcare seems to be? What the state of healthcare is now in America. Mm-hmm. So what he's talking about is that kind of is that kind of socialist intervention. Yeah, right. So of all you know, of all the kind of um, glorifications of of the communist ideology in this movie, that one I think would hit the hardest. Right. Because you know, even by this point, most Americans are like that. You know, if we don't if we don't want socialism in our healthcare. We want some kind of a socialized medicine. Well, yeah, by definition, that's what it is. Do you have yeah. dental insurance? Yeah. You believe in socialism. Shut up. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> well, I know. I'm I'm just try- I'm trying to I'm trying to tread carefully because, you know, once you put 
socialism into the argument it kind of it poisons everything but all all we're talking about it you know that's what single payer yeah healthcare right. means right it just right. they just won't say it because it politically it's it, it's too risky a word mm-hmm. so that's why we have all these euphemisms for it but right i just thought you know that was a very 2009 moment you know when did that michael moore movie come out called sick you know the one the documentary about the yeah i do know it i i, I want to say like 2012 but mm. and obviously but it, obamacare is Obama God, has was kind it of announced 2009? That would gonna... be interesting, wouldn't it? No, I mean, he, he hadn't launched it, but I mean, you know, it was in his manifesto, I think, mm-hmm. when he was elected, because he was 2008 uh, election manifesto, I think. Yeah. I want to say, didn't he have Hillary Clinton um, spearhead it? Did he? I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking of the Clinton, the Clinton administration. She definitely spearheaded it in the Clinton administration. Okay. Anyway. But uh, we have I have a moment. Oh, I'm wrong. Yeah, 2007 like... was Sicko. Oh, Sicko. That's what it's called, not Sick. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah. I think I think the Zeitgeist is having that debate. That's a uh, underrated, lesser known one of his films. Never seen it. I, I I kind of grew wary of his rhetoric a little bit. All right. As much as I admire overall what he's saying, <laughs> I just I, I just heard too many stories about what a not so nice person he was. I think to kind of oh uh, is that right? Do that. Yeah, but I, I I I've I've liked aspects of his documentary work over the years. Roger and me is amazing. TV Nation's amazing. Yeah. Bottom for Columbine is problematic. Um, <laughs> but uh. I'm sure Sicko is pretty good. Then something happens, which, again, I've never seen in a war movie where someone loses their glasses mid-battle. Yeah, right. I mean, these reminders that these are non-professional, mm-hmm. everyman soldiers. Totally. It's, it's a just, And it's all done in one shot, and it's continuous, and he has to get his glasses back on. Well, and not time. just that, but it's sort well, of... It's really one of the... Isn't it close to one of the only times we... You know, it's the biggest village we're we're seeing them mm-hmm. at. You know, it's yeah. not urban, but it feels more urban in the in in the yeah. You know, the guise of what's it's, going it's on of where village, they yeah. are. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. And so once it once the attack starts, and you realize what the actual army is willing to do in terms of friendly fire, like where they're willing mm-hmm. to attack, how little the people matter. And then, so the scope of that in the background with all, you know, and then you have something like the glasses moment. Yeah. Uh, you know, all of a sudden this movie is is saying more about one certain battle within a war film than most war films get to say in a whole movie. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and just, just the sort of, not even the political, but just the kind of visceral aspects of it, the to be able to capture the... The, the claustrophobia of being surrounded like you really do get the sense yeah of, right that the open air is closing in on them mm-hmm. there's there's nowhere to go but that's also uh, my note even... for the for the battle that continues on when they're in the ravine mm-hmm. that yeah. sort of surrounded feeling within that and yeah. the the way it's edited because 
it should be very difficult to tell where the guerrilla army are, the different factions yeah. of them in relation to each other. And yet Soderbergh is able to communicate that to the audience in a way that really yeah. surprised me. I was really impressed by it. Me too. Yeah. And that, oh, we've already talked about that, that panoramic shot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, that's, that's got to increase the sense of feeling encircled. Mm-hmm. Um, they even do like an early iteration of, of something that now irritates me when they do it in the cinema, which is the, the, the tinnitus soundscape thing, you know, the kind of shell shock where you, the, Oh yeah, the, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The ringing in the ears. The ringing in the yeah, yeah, and it's just been done to death since then. But two thousand and nine, I'll give it a pass. This is probably one of the first times they've tried it. I when it happened it, in the when, movie, I was wondering if this was one of the first incarnations of us seeing and hearing yeah. that. Exactly. Yeah. Now it's in Bond movies, so all bets are off. But there's another interesting thing happening when when the, the when the fight goes into that ravine. Because mm. I kept asking myself if the things I was wondering, were they because Soderbergh's a really good filmmaker or is it because as Hollywood moviegoers were conditioned? Like you, you start to believe that somebody might be able to escape this terrible situation. Right, right. Like that's what you're hoping for. Uh -huh. And it feels to me like Soderbergh's trying to give you that hope. Despite the yeah. fact that there's just like relentless no hope being like mm -hmm. literally closing in on them. And yeah. I, I didn't know if it was because we're conditioned through all the Hollywood type movies that we've seen where they, you know, oh, yeah. Gandalf comes in on the white horse kind of moments. <laughs> well, there's uh, a white horse in this movie, so it's perfect. Yeah, awesome. right. I agree. I, yeah, I, I think... I would say it's probably a byproduct of the immediacy that mm -hmm. Soderbergh creates in these scenes that you can feel like you're living through it. Yeah. And then you have no knowledge of the other, you, you know, most, you don't have that dramatic irony that you normally have as a film goer where you're like, well, he's fucked. Like, you know, even right. though you do because of history, but... The, but all you the, have that suspension of disbelief in the moment because it feels yeah. like it's happening in real time. But you have it for a certain amount of time, and then all of a sudden there's a moment where real dread and fear kind of yeah. envelop you as you realize there's no hope. Like there's just those two guys pinned against the rock, Che by himself by that tree. Yeah. Um, it all feels relentlessly. Yeah. Yeah, you feel nothing but dread and fear for these characters. Yeah, and then it gets very expressionistic, and you sort of you 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 feel the you feel the idea of the world crashing down on one man, mm -hmm. and I think you know that the uh, the style shifts there to accommodate that feeling to something a bit more expressionistic, which really lasts till the end of the movie. Really, it's kind of right through to his death. We're sort of seeing it all through. It's we've we it's interesting because we sort of we've had a kind of omniscient detachment from Shay's perspective but in these last like few minutes of the movie we're very much seeing the movie through his eyes mm -hmm. i mean at the at the end quite literally yeah right they have this that really amazing scene towards the end when he's captured and he's who's that soldier is his name i think it's, it's mm. eduardo yeah that scene, scene you have 
the sense of the charisma of the man when he asks him to untie him. Mm -hmm. You know, he's half dead already. It feels like <laughs> like he's he's beaten. He's yeah. weary. But you have that like the the moment where it's, the, like, a, who, it's like an evil hypnotist. He's sort yeah, of like, exactly. You know, I that can, I can influence people. I influence the whole country. I can, right. I can make this guy do what I want him to do. It's great that Eduardo says nothing and just walks out the door, but but it looks like he laments what he's doing, and when he tells his partner outside, he's like, he asked me to untie him. Yeah. But he said it in a way of like, and I almost did it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like, no, was... absolutely, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's a great, and all great war movies, or even good war movies have to have this, is like a humanity of war moment. Yeah, you right. Know, it's like it's this the cigarette exchange. Yeah. It's just this it's it's the it's just two men in a room. But then you're immediately contrasted with let me out. And yeah, then you're right. back in you're back in the world. So it is yeah. just this brief suspension of, you know, like the the famous kind of football match between the British and German soldiers on the fields of Flanders, you know, that kind of mm -hmm. thing. Um, Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, an amazing Powell and Pressburger movie, has lots of those kinds of moments. Um, in fact, really, the movie's all about that. But um, that that's just a, such a great scene. And another kind of surprising moment, and I think this is where the kind of not caricaturing the villains of the piece really pays off. And again, I don't know if this is tracked in part one or not, but the... Uh, the Cuban special force, the, the American special forces guy is yeah. Cuban and his family was, his his father was, his uncle was executed by Fidel Castro. Right. I don't know if we're finding this out here or whether this is tracked in the first movie, but it doesn't really matter. Like, it's like, oh yeah, what about all the people that, <laughs> you know, were persecuted by the Cuban regime as well? And Sure. Uh, brings it and you're just like okay yeah this guy this this uh, from this this guy from his own perspective is doing the world a great service by mm -hmm. bringing the sky down so that's an important moment too absolutely but but boy does he look like saddam hussein in these scenes yes he does yeah <laughs> I he think really I does. mean I I think Benicio del Toro I don't know if he was trying to pitch a Saddam biopic I don't know but he would be the perfect man for that job I think I don't know Absolutely. if he'd get away with it in these in you know these times of uh trying to match actor and character racially but mm -hmm. you probably would have to go with a Middle Eastern person yeah not wrongly I'm just saying that right. There's something about Benicio del Toro which, which suggests to me he would make a great Saddam Hussein. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, that's an image that's in people's minds, and I think Soderbergh is playing with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so too. Of the Saddam capture, and you know that that is how he is seen by a portion of the world. Yeah, and we can't we can't ever like forget that that you know remember donald trump's tweet when fidel castro died fidel castro is dead exclamation mark you know that's uh <laughs> that sums up the man doesn't it yeah well these these moments they're rallying christ to conservatives around the world and mm -hmm. yeah we've got another one here i noticed that they you know when they finally kill che 
it yes. comes in the form of Order 600, hmm. which they say to us as though it's like something we all know. It's like like a yeah. like a day that will live in infamy kind of a quote, you know? We can read, but it's uh, the 70s of it all. We can read between the lines. True. <laughs> I mean, what's there's no other way it's going to go down at this point. No, yeah, but it made me wonder if in smaller circles... Maybe. That I don't know about is that more known than I, than I, than I knew. But is it more known than Order sixty six? I don't think so. <laughs> That's the problem. Order sixty six. That's the was, problem. That's the one that is yeah, known. It eclipsed. Yeah. <laughs> God damn it! And of course, you see the photograph being taken. Yeah. And how kind of staged it is. And I think that's a really nice, again, like how cinema can do something that photography can't. Like it can show you what's beyond the limit of the photograph. Mm-hmm. Um, and another reason to cast Del Toro Shea is the way that he stares down the firing squad. Yeah. I mean, that would have been a weird audition, but that could have been his audition. <laughs> I don't think he needs to audition. He probably doesn't. Really I'm sure he didn't have to audition for this role, but I, especially the 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 ignominy of of doing an audition plus him having to pretend that he's being executed. I think the combination of the two he probably wouldn't stand for. Oh, that's great! But I love how he stares down that firing squad. I think it's definitely it's a great acting moment. And I go both ways on the point of view, Death. I think, mm. you know, it fits in with a movie that's experimental and different, but just feels a bit more flashy, a bit more novelty compared to some of the to other... To the rest of the film. the film. Yeah. It, it fits style. It fits with the motif of the movie about watching people experience violence rather than seeing violence. Sure. You know, and I like the unfocusing of the camera in the moment of death. Mm-hmm. But you too. It kind of it it, it sort of read as a bit divisive, like a bit. I I, I I mean I get what you mean, but it didn't it it didn't bump me, you know. Like okay. I was, I wasn't. I thought upset it could have been starker. I thought it could have felt. I thought it could have been starker. This felt a bit, a bit ethereal. I don't know. Yeah, but the other choice to, is to show it from the other point of view, and we've seen like things like that. Yeah, we have. We have over and over That's and what over I mean. again. Like, so, you know, I admire that it's different. Yeah, I just don't know if it quite. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't think it's as great as they think it is. <laughs> it, it might not be extraordinary. <laughs> it's the and opposite it's, opposite of Into the Blue Two. No, I, I mean a Crank Two, high voltage. <laughs> It might not be extraordinary. <laughs> you wash your mouth out, sir, bad-mouthing into the Bluetooth on this podcast. So, but I, I think, I don't know, It's um, maybe it's because the movie doesn't need this to sort of justify its grandeur. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It sold that to me in so many ways up to this point that I didn't need it. All right. I think that's what it is. Fine. But I, but uh, obvious the great choice of blocking any clear shot of Shay's body, yeah, is I mean because that's like counteracting the sensationalization of his death in the media. 
mm-hmm. by giving them the dignity of not, you know, not showing a a, a made up corpse in a movie. Sure, I think it's really well handled. Well, there you have it, Che Part Two. Yes, yeah, so, and then <laughs> the movie, the, the movie, and there's a couple of half scenes that end the movie we get a, a helicopter leaving that blows dust in people's faces like like what really happened at the end of mash mm-hmm. um, kind of moments um and then a flashback i think well he's dead so it's definitely a flashback i i was gonna say i think it's definitely a flashback to young shay i don't know if it's a shot from the first film or neither do i it was shot for this film i i'm yeah, I know. It's a rhetorical question. I realize that at this point. You can tell me tomorrow. <laughs> That's right. But I thought, yeah, it made me think of, you know, I thought about Godfather movies a lot. And this reminded me of how the Godfather part two ends with a flashback. Mm, yeah. Which is kind of the most important scene in the movie that no one remembers is in the movie. Um, <laughs> and this is not necessarily that. But um, I thought it was interesting that they went back just for a brief moment mm-hmm. before they like they broke the the real time aspect of the movie yeah because it's the only yeah it's the only non-continuous yeah other, other other yeah other than that it's a it's a through line it's just straight through interesting we even so have days to count off throughout the entire movie <laughs> ticking off that's the, that's the great thing like if you watch enough like prestige movies after a while you get inured to just like well that's got to be meaningful don't know what it means but it's got to be meaningful (laughs) i know what they're going for yeah that's funny any uh last notes for you before a credit check sir no i'm into my credit check right now yeah i noted that it was a no music credit check yes folk song then silence yeah um, it's like a, um, so it's like, it's like a funeral, basically it's like the flow of a funeral. You get memorializing through song and then respectful mourning. Right, so it plays, right. the credits are like a funeral, I think. I, intentionally, I think it's supposed to be like that. I do not envy the people, all the people who had to compile the real and multiple fake names of all the characters and actors in this movie. I know, right? <laughs> There's a credit on here I've never seen before called Aging Artist, which is kind of an unfortunate term because it makes it sound like the artist is aging instead of the person who ages the film actors. Right. Uh, Special effects makeup by Plan 9. Now, if you're working outside the context of a a no-budget production, it's not a good name to have. It doesn't make your brand look good. (laughs) <laughs> the uh, the publicist for this movie was Spooky Stevens, who okay, I like then. to th- I, l- I like to think promotes a movie by haunting the houses of major distributors and movie critics. <laughs> Coming soon <laughs> to a movie theater near you. <laughs> And then, <laughs> I love this one. I, I I always note this whenever I see it. The the history film version of the of the standard disclaimer: certain characters and incidents have been composited. Yeah, right. So it's like a halfway house, isn't it? It's like, well, it's true. 
And on the other hand, it's as bullshit as any other movie. (laughs) (laughs) Don't don't watch this to take a test, is all we're saying. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, that that was something that, that struck me as well, and another kind of smoking gun of a good historical movie, is you don't immediately know the part of the movie that's bullshit. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen Darkest Hour, where Gary Oldman plays Winston Churchill. Yeah. There's a scene in that where he goes into the, into the, uh, the tube, he goes onto a tube train, like he escapes from his handlers and goes into the london underground uh-huh. and he meets all these quote regular people sure and i'm just like i was like immediately i'm like that's the made-up part <laughs> <laughs> so that to me is a sign of a bad historical movie versus a movie like death of stalin where the part i thought was made up was not only real but it i i, I later learned that like the way that that movie starts where stalin asked for a recording of a of a radio concert that they haven't recorded, that went out live and they haven't recorded it. So they have right. to keep everybody in, record it, and then the and then the conductor faints, so they've got to find another conductor to do the <laughs> concerto. And I, I later learned that, they, that Armando Iannucci actually edited that down from what really happened, where it happened twice with two different composers. But when he was writing it, he's like, nobody's going to believe that this happened twice in succession. Yeah, like, right. Like the the guy that they got to replace the conductor had a heart attack. So they had to do the whole thing all over again and he was just like no one's ever going to believe this happened. <laughs> so that's how you know you're in a good historical movie where you can't tell the difference between what's made up and what's real. And this this I suspect the the true I was just like this could have happened. This could be a composited scene as they put it. <laughs> I don't know, and that's that's what I want to feel. Have you ever seen uh, the behind-the-scenes thing of, of Gary Oldman completely in makeup as and dressed as yes. Winston Churchill dancing as James Brown? Oh, no, I haven't seen I thought you were going to say, when you said Gary Oldman in makeup, I thought you were going to say Gary Oldman in full Dracula makeup, uh, arguing with Francis Ford Coppola. Oh, that's for, uh, now that I haven't seen. It, it's it's so much like Spinal Tap. It's untrue. <laughs> it is. It li- literally is just is is like when you say come through the door. What do you mean? <laughs> I don't know what you mean when you say come through the door. And it, bear in mind, he's in full like with the big the two the big wig. rain heads. The, yeah. yeah, the wig and everything <laughs> like that. And Coppola's going, just walk through the door, Gary. Just walk. Through. He said, yeah, but when you say come through the door. What do you mean? That's not direction. <laughs> and it's like, oh my god. <laughs> I think, uh, in regards to Gary Oldman, I think I would say to his credit, I think now he thinks of himself back then as a real asshole. Like yeah, he'll he did. To he it. did. He, he did, and there's footage attesting to that. For yeah. Sure. But it's funny him dancing as James Brown in full Winston Churchill getup. Ah, I could imagine. Yeah. I would have liked to have seen that in the movie. I might have... <laughs> I would have bought that more than the scene where he talks to regular people on the Regular tube. folk. 
<laughs> yeah, Churchill wasn't uh, really didn't like his regular people. He liked his cigars and his whiskey. And his uh, drugs. Yeah. And his cocaine. His evening <laughs> cocaine. I'll just let the Germans carpet bomb commentary. Anyway. Well, that's it. That's it. Yes, that's the end of, <laughs> that's the end of my credit check. The... My credit check ended a long time ago. Sorry. <laughs> Well, this has been Churchill. Uh, this has been Gary Oldman's Churchill <laughs> yeah. Corner. And... We are now a World War Two podcast. <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen. So Che Part Two is in the books. It's at the top of both of our lists for reasons, <laughs> for good reasons. Yeah. Uh, compared to these other films, we didn't. Wa- we didn't. We wanted to begrudge it, but we couldn't. No. So no, it, you it, just you just couldn't quality shine through in the end. Yeah. And uh, you'll have to tell us what you think. So uh, find us on Facebook. Find us on Instagram. Elon Musk is gonna light himself on fire any day. So don't bother with X. But uh, send an email to everythingsequel at gmail dot com. When you hear us next time, we're gonna be pitching sequels to one of these things. Yeah. So look forward to that, friends. What movie do you choose is the question. All right. For Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions, I'm Michael Schantz of the How Dare You Awards. We will be back. Say goodbye, Tom. I suffer from rheumatism, I swear. (laughs) That's the Cluso-like Bolivian police chief. That almost sounded like Mr. Burns as... as that's Dracula. <laughs> it was unfortunate for all concerned. <laughs> all right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Take care. We'll be back. But I got it all wrong. You know, I got my perception was all wrong. <laughs>